0: I'd open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and the title of the message is From Forgiven to Forgiving. So I want you to think about forgiveness a little bit, and it's probably going to make you a little uncomfortable, because at some point during the service, it's very likely that God's going to bring somebody across your mind that you need to forgive. And it's real hard to forgive some people, isn't it? In fact, sometimes our mind is they don't deserve to be forgiven. Well, that's why we go back to we've been forgiven. Who's, who has forgiven us? If we're a child of God, who's forgiven us? This is live. You can talk back. If we're, a, if we're a Christian, who has forgiven us? Jesus. Good. I would have gone with God or Jesus would have worked there. We've been forgiven. Jesus said a lot about forgiveness. Forgiveness. In fact, in the Lord's Prayer, when he was teaching the disciples how to pray, he said, here's how you pray. He gets to verse 12. He said, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Some translations said, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Some little kids quoted it this way. He said, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have passed trash against us. But then he gets to verse 14, which he's already said amen, but 14 and 15 he says, For if you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. That's where it gets personal. That's where it's, have you ever had somebody you just didn't want to forgive? I have an older brother. He's about four and a half years older than me. He treats me well now, but I think the reason he treats me well now is a lot of guilt from our childhood. He was ruthless at times. I mean, there were times he'd beat me up, hit me. There were other times he protected me from other bullies, so I appreciate that. But one time he thought it'd be a real good idea. He took this metal cigarette lighter and heated the top of it. He kind of opened it enough where he could light it, heated the top of it, and then he just came up, and I didn't have a shirt on. He just pressed it against my skin, left a mark. In fact, it was really bad. That night, the shirt I wore to bed ended up sticking to my body. And, of course, he would say, if you tell mom about this, I'll make it worse. So, you know, I, my, my mom never knew. In fact, she's listening to this sermon when, when, when it's on the Internet next week. She probably never knew that actually happened. But I remember having these thoughts at the times. I may have been only 12 years old or 13 years old. I was so mad, and I would think, I will never forgive him. In fact, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, he's a lot bigger than I am right now. I can't do anything about this. But one day, when I'm 80 years old, (laughs) and with a cane, and he's 85 years old in a wheelchair, I'm going to make a note that I'm going to just haul off and smack him over the head. You think I'm kidding. I really, I, you know, Maybe it wasn't 80, but I just think someday I'm going to get revenge. Of course, I've got this mental picture now of my brother in a wheelchair at 85 years old saying, Why did you hit me? And of course, I'm going to say, I don't remember. I just made a note. <laughs> and then that thought of, I'm not going to forgive him. Then you read verses like that. If you don't forgive others, God won't forgive you. In fact, in other places it says, as God has forgiven you, so you should forgive others. What does that mean? Even if they don't deserve it, you forgive. In fact, that's what Jesus said on the cross. The first thing that Jesus says in Luke 23, from the cross, you remember what he said? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. To forgive. You and I struggle with that. In fact, we really can't forgive like God does Here's how God forgives. The word forgive literally means to send away. You and I can't do that. If somebody does something to you and you legitimately want to forgive them, it's hard to forget it, isn't it? But God forgets it. That's how you know you're, that's the blessing of forgiveness by God. He doesn't hold it against you. He sends it as far as the east is from the west. He forgets. Because he chooses to forget, and he's God, he can do that. When he looks at you the next time, he doesn't look at you seeing whatever it was you did. He sees you as a Christian with the righteousness of Christ. So let's look at the first part of this passage, beginning in verse 5. And I want you to see Paul, what he teaches him about forgiveness, but it's real interesting, the last few verses of this chapter, chapter 2, I want you to see the result of that obedience and the connection between the two. Beginning in verse 5, I'm going to read through verse 11. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not for me or not to me, but in some degree in order not to say too much to all of you. Sufficient for such a one as this is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the, on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him, otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also, I wrote, so that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For if indeed what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, For we are not ignorant of his schemes. So first is this cause for forgiveness. Here's what's happened in this first century church in Corinth. Somebody within the church has offended Paul. They've said something against him or done something against him. It's not explicit here, but it's obvious that the church has reacted to something that somebody did against Paul. And Paul even says, hey, listen, I didn't take it personally. And he's going to call them to... Forgive this person. But he says, in some degree, not to say too much. He's done it to you. Literally what Paul's saying there is not to say too much. I don't want to be excessive here. I don't want to overstate it. I don't want to exaggerate it. But he's really offended the body of Christ. He's offended the church. So we're dealing with a troublemaker. What do you do with troublemakers in the church? Four things I want you to see about this troublemaker. First of all, he's inside the church. And I know where you come from, your church. You don't have problems like this. You don't have troublemakers in your church. Right? <laughs> yeah, we say times we have troublemakers in the church. Why? Because we're sinners. And we still at times say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing, or think the wrong thing. And so sometimes there's troublemakers. Here's the problem when they're inside the church, it's worse than if they were outside the church. Because if it's outside the church, the whole church can kind of come together and encourage and support one another against whatever's happening from without. But when it's inside the church, it can end up dividing the whole church. The church could end up taking sides. And so Paul says, what this troublemaker has done has really hurt the church. But he had three needs. So first of all, it's inside the church but he, and he needed discipline. So Paul says in verse 6, listen, sufficient, su- sufficient punishment has occurred. Ample punishment or discipline has taken place, and it was inflicted by the majority. So in other words, the church got together and decided, here's what we're going to do in this case. And the problem is, apparently not everybody agreed, because Paul said it was inflicted by the majority, not by a unanimous group of the church. So here's what happens in church discipline in the church. Some people may not go along with what the church says ought to happen. So what do we do? Well, you go back to Scripture. In fact, Matthew 18, if you want to just jot this down, i will read a few verses from Matthew 18. What do you do when there's conflict in the church? There is such a thing and a call for church discipline. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17 says this. If your brother sins, okay, it works for sisters too, if someone in your church sins, go and show him their fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. So the first thing you do is this. If somebody within the church does something they shouldn't do, and in this case, somebody did something against Paul, it may have been something they said, it may have been something they done, or they did or both. So what do you do? You go to that person. When you recognize it, you go to that person. Here's what you don't do. You don't go to everybody else in the church and say, did you hear what he did? And in fact, I've been in churches that do it this way. They don't gossip. They share prayer requests. You know the difference? Here's how you gossip without thinking you're gossiping. Y'all need to pray for Tom. Did you hear what he did? And, And I love it too, man. Don't tell anybody else this. Keep this confidential. You're not keeping it confidential. So the first thing we're supposed to do, if somebody sins against us, or in this case, if you were in the church and somebody sinned against the church from within, you go to that person. And you ask them, hey, did, did I get this right? Is this what you did? Can, I got a problem with that. That's, that doesn't seem to be the right thing. In fact, it says if, you, if he listens to you, you've won your brother. You could solve the problem right there. In fact, not doing it that way can create more problems. All right, so what happens if he doesn't listen to you? Well, verse 16. But if he decides not to listen to you, take one or more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So if you go to that person and they don't listen to you, then you take somebody with you so that there's a witness there. Now, you don't start with that step. That's step two. What do you do if somebody comes to you and says, Hey, did you hear what Tom was up to? I'm going to pick on Tom right now because I can't think of, I don't know if there's a Tom here. I'm picking on Tom. So what if somebody comes to you and says, Hey, did you hear what, what Tom did? First question you ask them is, Why are you telling me this? And second question is, Have you talked to Tom? And if they say, Well, I'm telling you this because I want you to talk to Tom. <laughs> then say to them, Don't expect me to tote your mail." God's laid this on your heart. You go talk to Tom. And if you ask him, if you talk to Tom and they say no, say, well, I don't want to hear anymore. You go talk to Tom about it. Or Sally. Whoever it is. So by one or more witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Well, then what happens if he or she doesn't listen then? Verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Some of you are kind of thinking, what does that mean in today's language? Well, a Gentile was somebody outside the church that was a lost person. So it's really a simple, it's not simple because once you get into doing it, it's hard. It's a lot easier, humanly speaking, to just ignore it. What happens when we ignore sin in the church? It spreads. So there is a way to deal with sin in the church. It's discipline. You go to that person. They don't listen to you. Take one or more people with you. Third thing is you take it to the church. If they don't want to listen to the church, and apparently that's kind of what had happened here. This guy had been excommunicated, disfellowshipped from the church. And Paul's saying your punishment was sufficient. It was according to Scripture. But discipline from God has a purpose. In fact, discipline's not a bad thing. Discipline's not the opposite of love. Discipline demonstrates love. In fact, in more than one place in the New Testament, it says God disciplines those whom he loves. In fact, the opposite of love really is just apathy. And so Paul says this, the discipline's been enough. So the third thing, he needed to be forgiven. And here's where we get back to, yeah, but he doesn't deserve to be forgiven. Neither did you. We don't forgive somebody because he he deserved to be forgiven. In this case, apparently, the discipline had worked. And this guy had repented. And so Paul is saying, forgive him. In fact, that's really the point of discipline, is to bring people back to fellowship. Forgive them. I asked that question one time, you know, we can't forget, so how do we know we've forgiven somebody? And I can't read this in a theological textbook, but somebody gave me this advice years ago, and I've tried to live by it. They say, you'll know you have forgiven them when you can treat them like it never happened. And that may take time, that may be hard, and it really may take a lot of prayer. It may take you praying these kind of prayers. God, help me treat them the way you treat them in forgiveness. Help me to see them the way you see them. And maybe you just need to say, God, please remind me that I have sinned far worse against you than this person could ever sin against me. And it's not all about me anyway. And it's interesting, the fourth thing. Not only did he need to be forgiven, Paul also said, and comfort him. That's what I preached on last week. The end of chapter 1 was all about comfort. It occurred 10 times in just about... Actually, it was the first week, in about four verses, three through seven, the first chapter of 2 Corinthians. Comfort him. I want you to get what the word comfort means. It's a Greek word, two words put together, paraclete. It's actually in the hymn book. I used to wonder when I was a kid what baseball shoes had to do with God. But paraclete, it means one called alongside of. And here's the cool sense of what the word means. It means this. Not only do you forgive that guy, you're to comfort him. In other words, you're to draw him close. So that he, you can be Jesus with skin on in his life. You can comfort him up close and personal, folks. That's what the church ought to be about. We don't do, we don't play God with people. When somebody sins, we do Matthew 18, and if it gets to the point where you have to say we're going to have to disfellowship from you for a while, but our hope is that you'll repent, you'll turn from this, and ask God to forgive you. And if you do that, we're going to forgive you. It's hard. It's going to require prayer, but hopefully you get to the point where you treat them like it never happened. I heard a great illustration of this one time, and I don't know if it actually happened or not. I'm being honest with you. I know some of you are sitting there thinking, is that a true story is that just a preacher talking? When I share stories, they're true. Enough weird stuff happens to me that I can tell you true stuff. So if I'm, ne- if I'm ever unsure about whether it happened or not, I'm, I'm just telling you. I, don't, I read this. I don't know if it actually happened, but it's a cool illustration of this point a guy in a church had committed a sin against the church everybody in the church knew about it he got up confessed it to the church and submitted himself to church discipline every week he met over at somebody's house and all the leadership deacons and elders of the church would meet together with this guy and their purpose was to restore this guy and he was embarrassed he was shamed but about a year had gone by and he pulled up to the house And there were a lot of cars there. He thought, what are all these cars? And he started recognizing some of the cars. He thought, this isn't just the leadership of the church. This is like the whole church showed up. And he kind of reluctantly walked up to the door because he thought, you know, I've been doing everything they've asked me to do. It's been about a year. And he walks up and rings the doorbell, and they come to the door, and they placed a robe on him. And they placed a ring on his finger. And they placed shoes on his feet. What was all that about? He was a prodigal that had sinned, but he had come back asking forgiveness. And the whole church welcomed him back and said, just like the prodigal son, they placed a robe on his back. They placed a ring on his finger. They placed sandals or shoes on his feet. You're restored to the fellowship of the church. I wish it worked that way more often, but that's the way it ought to work. When forgiveness takes place in the church, In fact, Peter came to Jesus in Matthew 18, and he says, How often should I forgive somebody that sinned against me? And the Old Testament law, what Peter had been taught was you, you forgive them seven times, which I guess meant on the eighth time, it's own. Remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, No, I'm not telling you seven times. I'm telling you 70 times seven. What was he doing? He's kind of using an infinite number. I mean, you could do the math on that and think, Now, what is that, about 490 So 491, no, that's not. The point of what Jesus was saying is, you forgive. Why? Because we're supposed to forgive like God does. And he says, forgive and comfort him, otherwise he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Overwhelmed literally means to drink down fully. It means this guy who has repented and come back to the church to be forgiven, if you don't forgive him and comfort him, he could end up, falling off the deep end worse because of this this excessive sorrow that weighs him down. He's already guilty. And just like we who are guilty before God when he forgives us, we're forgiven. Paul says there's in Romans 8, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We're forgiven. So so that there's not excessive sorrow Forgive him, and don't just forgive him, but comfort him. In fact, he says, I urge you to reaffirm or literally ratify your love for this guy. And the word he uses for love is the word agape. It means unconditional love. Who loves like that? God. The only way you and I can love like that is God loving through us. So that's the call for forgiveness. Then I want you to see the obedience in forgiveness. Verses 9 through 11, Paul says, to this end I wrote you to put you to the test. Paul had written 1 Corinthians. We believe he had written some other letters and they had written letters back to him and they're referred to in 1 Corinthians, these other letters. But now we get 2 Corinthians, which may have been the fourth letter that he's written to them. He said, the reason I've written you some of these things, I'm telling you how to act in these circumstances and you've been obedient, but I want to see if you're going to be obedient in all things. You're obedient in the punishment, now you're going to be obedient in the forgiveness and the comforting, the restoration. So Paul says, if you forgive anything, I'll forgive, any, I'll forgive also, and I'm forgiving for your sake. Isn't that incredible that Paul says, you need to forgive this guy, not just for him, but for you. When you hold unforgiveness over somebody, you know what I've discovered? Sometimes they don't even know you're mad at them. It's eating you up. This root of bitterness is eating you up. There's a line from, anybody ever seen the movie, Diary of a Mad Black Woman? Okay, all right, three of you. I'm not recommending you go get it, but Cicely Tyson's in the movie, and I love one of the lines in the movie. She says, you need to forgive him, not for him, but for you. See, forgiveness affects not just the forgiven. It affects the forgiver. It also affects, in this case, the whole church. So Paul is asking them to be obedient in what he's instructing them to do. In fact, finally, he says, so that no advantage is taken of us by Satan. Folks, here's how Satan works. Satan loves to work his way into the church. And if he can get somebody to do something wrong and then get everybody to find out about it, he can split a church. Maybe not even split it in two, he may just fracture the church. So Paul says, We're not ignorant to his schemes. We've learned how he works. He's devious, he's a liar. And he loves fanning problems into flames. In fact, he wants to destroy the church. Some people may say, well, preacher, you think there's a demon behind every bush. Have you ever heard that? I heard somebody tell me that one time. You think there's a demon behind every bush? No, I don't. I don't think they're in the bushes. I think they're in here. They may have rode rode in on somebody's shoulder because you brought them with you we got to understand the schemes of the devil. The, the devil is a liar. He's a thief. He's a destroyer. And he will use an unforgiven spirit. Unforgiveness in us. And we'll convince ourselves that we're right. And that unforgiveness may end up destroying us. We should not be caught off guard. We're not ignorant to the schemes of the devil. Then lastly, the third point is the result of obedience. I just want you to get Paul here in these last few verses. Let me read verses 12 through 17. Now, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother. But taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Here's Paul just sharing his heart. Paul wrote this letter from Ephesus. If you look at your maps, he's left Ephesus. He's headed up to Troas, which is on the way to Macedonia and eventually on the way to Corinth. He sent Titus ahead of him with this letter or with another letter. So he's writing another letter saying, hey, I got to Troas. I'm on my way. But I didn't find Titus and I was burdened. Why is he burdened? He's burdened because he hadn't heard back from the Corinthians. There was problems in the church. And so he's written these other letters to say, "Hey, straighten things out. Here's what you need to be looking for. There's false teachers, there's the devil, all that all that stuff happening around you. He wanted to hear a word back from Titus, "Hey, they're okay. Things are improving. They're going to be all right." So he gets to Troas and expects Titus to be there and he's not there. Now, they didn't have cell phones back then. So there were times you had to wait days or even weeks thinking, "All right, now the last time I heard he was coming this way and you know, I was going that way, and where is he? So he was so burdened, said, no rest for my spirit. He literally was overwrought. Why? Because the Corinthians were like his children. There's parents in this room, there's been times you've been overwrought because of your children. Maybe because they're doing something that you're concerned about, or you just had not heard from them in a while. I discovered last year that it's possible for children to be overwrought over their parents. You ever experienced that? We had a trip planned to Israel last year and had about 30 people signed up in the summertime early. is the earliest we'd ever had that size crowd ready to go. But because of what was going on in Israel, one after one I had people dropping out. And here was the normal statement was, my kids won't let me go. And I thought that was kind of funny because I was in youth ministry a whole long time dealing with parents, and I've actually taken some of those parents back to the Holy Land. And now their kids are worried about their parents. That's a good thing. But that's where Paul's heart was. These were like his children in the Lord, certainly. And Paul's saying, I am overwrought because I haven't heard back how you're doing. For all he knows, the false teachers had won. And the good news is they hadn't. But he hadn't heard that yet. So because I hadn't found Titus, I went on to Corinth. In fact, I think I got this passage, 2 Corinthians, later in this same book, chapter 7, verses 5 through 7. Just listen as Paul writes a little bit more. He said, For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. We were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. So he finally catches up with him in Macedonia. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he has comforted in you, he was comforted in you. As he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. So the good news is we've read the rest of the story, and we know that finally he connects with Titus and hears the good report from Corinth. No, they weren't perfect yet. They still had problems. That's why Paul's writing. But to hear that they were doing okay. And then in verse 14 he says, Thanks be to God. I just want to say, Paul was going through a time, really, of depression. The way he overcame it was to start thanking God. Just a side note. If you're dealing with depression, start thanking God. Start looking at things in your life you're thankful for. And it's amazing how once the focus is off of you and back on God, depression can leave. Thanks be to God. But I love the end of this. And keep in mind, this is For believers, I believe these are promises. Paul said, God always leads us in triumph in Christ. Paul was using an image of something these people had seen before. You and I don't see this as much. But there would be processionals. The Roman army, when they conquered a foe, would come back into town. And typically at the front of the the processional were the priest and oftentimes a choir. And the priest would have these censers. There were these kind of bowls on the end of chains, and it would have incense in it. It would put off this aroma. And so the king in the city would begin to smell this aroma and realize, hey, they're back. And they would have this grand processional. And not only would the conquerors be there, but the conquered would be there. The people they had conquered in these enemy regions, they'd bring them back in as prisoners and slaves. And Paul's saying, hey, God's got his own processional. And you're part of it as a believer in Christ. In fact, he says that we are a fragrance, we're an aroma. What he's saying is, you smell. Now, I know some middle school boys that smell just because they didn't take a shower, all right? That's not what we're going for. Here's what Paul's saying By your very life, you're putting off an aroma. As you're obedient, The rest of the world sees that and, in a sense, smells that. And they give glory to God because of it. He says he always leads us in triumph and manifests through us. Literally, he makes apparent through us who he is. This sweet aroma, literally a fragrance, a sweet smell of the knowledge of him in every place. We're a a fragrance of Christ to God. And ultimately, it's not the world that's the audience. It's God that's the audience. We're living the Christian life in such a way that it not just reaches earthly nostrils, but it reaches literally the nose of God. And it's a sweet aroma to Him as we're obedient and walking with Him in faith. And He says an aroma to death, from death to death, an aroma from life to life. He said it's an aroma to the saved and it's a aroma to the perishing. What does that mean? It means as you live the Christian life, People that are saved are going to be encouraged by it. People that are walking away from God hopefully will be encouraged by it and turn to God. But some people are going to reject God and in doing so, they're going to reject you too. But you're a constant reminder. That's why some people hate Christians. students. That's why some people make fun of you at school because you're a believer. And I don't know what the line is now. When I was a kid, it was kind of, you know, you're just goody-two-shoes. You're holier than thou. You think you're... And it's like, I don't think any of that. I'm just trying to live for God. But it upsets some people. You walk into a place and, oh, quit quit talking. We can't tell this story because Tommy just showed up. It's an aroma for the saved life to life, for the perishing, those who are walking away from God, those who have rejected God. It's a constant reminder. And that reminder will be used by God to bring some of those people to faith, but not all of them. Some of them are going to continue to walk away from God. And we are a reminder in this life and the next life what they gave up. And then Paul caps it all off. I want to close with this thought. He says, we're not like those false teachers in your midst. We're not peddling the word of God. But we're being obedient and faithful. To teach both in sincerity and as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. The word he uses for peddler is literally a huckster or a con artist. They're trying to cleverly deceive people to buy a cheap imitation of the real thing. I got my own story there. Some have heard this in this place, but it, it's, it illustrates this point too well. Paul says, we're not peddling the Word of God. That's exactly what the false teachers were doing. They were trying to get rich by peddling a false gospel. I visited Tijuana a few years ago, and one of the things in Tijuana, they have a lot of things for sale. They have Gucci bags and Rolex watches and all these things, and you'll find out after you look at them closely, they're not real. I went down to this corner, and I decided I kind of knew it wasn't real, but I was going to buy it anyway, a Rolex watch. Rolex watches a lot of times cost thousands or tens of thousands of dollars, number one, because they're really good watches, but they also typically have jewels on them, perhaps diamonds or other jewels, and they're they're expensive, but they're really good watches. Now, I'm kind of wondering if we need watches anymore with cell phones. I don't know if you need a $10,000 watch, but I know where you can get a Rolex for seven bucks. Tijuana. I looked at one in the case. I said, show me that one. He hands it to me. Wait a minute. It's right here. It's This one. It says Rolex on it. One of the first indications is if it doesn't say R-O-L-E-X, if it says something like R-O-L-A-I-D-S, that's Rolex. You don't want a Rolex watch. You can get those a lot cheaper than $7. One of the things you'll notice about this watch, well, one thing you'll notice is it hadn't worked since I left Tijuana. But the second hand ticked like a quartz watch. In a Rolex, the second hand is sweet movement. Also, it's very light. Here, hold that. It's a lot. A Rolex is heavy. That's cheap. All right. So I'm I'm dickering with this guy, bargaining with him. And I said, uh, I said well, let me look at that. And I got it in my hands and he said, $50. In fact, he, he said, for you, $50. I thought, was it 25 for the other guy? And he, then he started calling me amigo. For you, amigo, $50. So I started bargaining with him. And I finally made him mad. I said, well, it's not real. He said, sir, it is a genuine replica. I prize exactly what he said. I had to think about that for a minute. A genuine replica, which means it's a really good fake. I finally got him down to about $7. He said, okay, sir, I know eat today. I won't be eating lunch today. I was like, I'm giving you money. Of course you're going to be eating lunch today. And I think we ended up, like, combining this with, like, some vanilla and blankets and all that. But I figured out it's about seven bucks. It didn't work long, but I kept it because I thought, I'm going to use this someday in a sermon. <laughs> here's what Paul's saying. Listen, we're not peddling the Word of God. We're not selling a cheap imitation of the real thing. Why? Because we've got the real thing. It's better than a Rolex. It's the Word of God. We're obedient to that. So Here's my encouragement for you today. Be obedient to God in all things. Whether it be forgiveness, comfort, or whether it just be what God's putting on your heart to do. And then understand something. As we're obedient to God, we're in this processional of other believers. That's given an aroma to the world. It's a sweet fragrance. The world may hate it. But it's going to bring some people to salvation. It's going to encourage other people in the faith. To get in the processional. But we're not performing for them anyway. They're not our audience. God is. So we're giving our obedience to God. And he's leading us in a processional that one day will lead us right in to the gates of heaven. And he says, Welcome, my good and faithful servant. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Father, thank you for that truth. God, it may be that you've laid a a name on our heart this morning that we need to forgive. So, God, we've got the opportunity to be obedient to that. So I pray before we get out of our seats this morning that we'd make a plan of how we're going to go about forgiving that person. And then, Father, we recognize that you're using us as witnesses in the world. And so, God, as we live our lives, would we put off the fragrance of Christ. And would you draw people to yourself because of that? Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.